Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for August 2011. I am writer hyphen, critic hyphen, reciprocal Scott Swan, Drew McQueenie. Shout out, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi, hi there. I'm a writer hyphen director hyphen uh, failed superhero blockbuster, Paul Anthony Nelson. And uh, with us uh, this month is our special guest... Sue... Hyphen Maslin, hyphen <laughs> fan of Bazura Project, hyphen oh. not sure what I'm going to be getting myself into this session, but hey, I'm with you guys. I'm in your hands. <laughs> I think that fear is utterly justified. Um. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, Sue. As a producer of many Australian films, when you go and see an Australian film like, say, Red Dog, because it's written down in front of me. And just, yeah, just pulled that one out of a hat. Just, yeah, anyone, any, any, yeah. any of the many Australian films that have come out this month. <laughs> do, you, do you approach it differently to how you approach other films, like when you're just sitting down to watch? Or? Well, when I go and see Red Dog for a start, I actually happen to make a film up in the Pilbara in that red dirt in that same right. territory. So I'm sitting down there thinking, I know what these guys went through. I know the mm. dust and those lenses and those cameras. And oh, <laughs> did, no. we didn't have the dog, but we certainly had all of that red dirt and we had, you know, the blokes and the stubbies and the so on. We, we sort of took a slightly different bent with Japanese story, of course, but mm. no. Slightly it, different, <laughs> yeah. But it, well, it was fascinating because I have to be honest, it's almost like, you know, watching a, a home movie in a sense because it transported me back, you know. Mm, it's a bit right. of that sort of therapy on screen <laughs> transports you back into, uh, into to that zone and what it's like. And I take my hats off to those guys um, for what they achieved, uh, you know, filming. Because uh, it's a long, long way away mm. to be making a feature film. And uh, it was fun. I was a huge fan. I've, 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 been, a, uh, I've been a fan of Creve Stenders for ages. And I was actually a bit sceptical when I saw he was making it's this It's very film. unlike Creve, let's face yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Except uh, the dog. The dog did have attitude. Like that, that <laughs> was serious Creve, you know, in there. Yeah, yeah. But... Um, yeah, I thought, what's this family-friendly thing he's doing? But no, I, I, I adored it. I, um, I laughed and weeped like a little girl. I was glad wow. I was... Yeah, I got, I got to sit in the cinema by myself, which was really good because I was... The tears were streaming down my That's face for half the weird. film. too weird. You're in a cinema by yourself. So you had to do all the laughing and crying and clapping at the end by yourself. Yeah, pretty much. He does that normally. Operating the projector, the whole... No, yeah. ushering. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a uh, really interesting film. But somebody, I saw somebody pointed out that the main character shares the name with the guy from Wake in Fright. Like the John character. Grant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I, I didn't pick up on at all. And I thought that was a really fascinating comparison because it's, I mean, Red Dog is such a positive, you know, almost in being a semi-fantasy, it's such a positive mm. look at, at what life out there is like. And it's the mirror image of something like Wake in Fright, which is a fantastical negative wow. of... You know, it's it's basically two sides of the same coin, and and do you think really life is like that? You know, in in this day and age, or I look at Red Dog and I think actually, you know, it, it's phenomenally successful. Here we are, we're just going to week four. You know, it's mm. gone up, you know, eighteen percent and the twelve percent in the last week. It's hit, you know, eight eight and a half million dollars and still climbing. Just a sensational result. Mm. But in watching the film, you think, well, actually, it's the same film. You know, in terms of really heartfelt comedy that when you go you know years ago we went and saw in Crocodile Dundee we saw again and you know whether it's Muriel's Wedding or The Castle or Kenny mm. it's um it's, it's the same, same film it's mm. the same um set of characters and stereotypes and so on that appear in Australian films mm. that we as Australian audiences just seem to 
love and keep going back to. It's almost yeah. Pavlovian, isn't it? It's yeah. like the same triggers. <laughs> now, obviously, mining is not popular over, uh, recently. Yeah. Uh, in recent times. Um, yeah, it's an interesting time of the year to be... To be releasing a positive film set around a mining community. Mm. How did you find that? It didn't... It didn't bother me because it wasn't about mining. It was... It's not really mining propaganda in the sense that, uh, you know, to come back to Wake in Fright, that's not propaganda for the education industry because he's a teacher, you know. Yeah. It just happens to be people set... Yeah, I mean, uh, the mining industry did apparently contribute, uh, you know, financial assistance and they contributed in kind but there's not really any i have no trouble believing that people enjoy living in a mining town and enjoy the work uh if they were using that argument to say this is why we shouldn't pay taxes being a big mining Mm. company then i would take issue with that as i do with many of the ads that come out but yeah it's there's really nothing in there about you know that's promoting the mining industry other than people live and work there Pretty up serious product placement, all the same. Well, yeah. <laughs> we did. <see. laughs> well, it's unavoidable because it's so epic, and you want to see yeah. this small dog running around this yeah. m- these with these massive trucks. It's just, yeah, it's. Uh, I think just for the scale of it, I was uh, I was quite. I really liked the setting of the mining yeah. the mining town. Yeah. No, look, I have to say, I, I loved the sense of community, and mm. you know, this idea that you know, yes, there are a lot of people up there working because they can you know earn a buck and and it's tough work and so on but the thing that the film plays on is that of course red dog defines them as a community and that's Mm. where it's heartfelt that's why you know Mm. we love you know as australians uh, audiences and so on we clearly love watching that kind of film from red dog to the woman uh, which <laughs> subtle segue? Well, I could not think of a real segue, so I just thought I'd say the names of the films. Uh, <laughs> well, the woman has one that has a great tagline, which is "fun for all the family." Yes, which, yeah. yeah, the uh, the very, yeah tongue firmly in cheek and then chopped off. Yeah, uh, this is a new film from Lucky McKee, who did May and The Woods. The Woods isn't as well known, but May was just a cracker of a of a debut film, and. Yeah, The Woman is... I think this is the type of horror film we should be seeing more of. It's not just teens, you know, escaping from a slasher, someone's coming around the corner. It's not just the surface level tension. This is really about something. It's mm. about, you know, misogyny and it's about power and it's about family and it's it's really... I think that's what disturbed me more than anything was the underlying message. You know, it wasn't the gore, it was the... the why there was gore and what's the message because I don't think I want to see this film <laughs> convince me I'm not well I'm not sure I should if uh, I don't know if, if you don't like the idea of uh, people actually I won't say that because that spoils the ending yeah. uh, people doing nasty things to other people yeah. well no it's uh, people doing nasty things to women and there's a lot of you know slasher misogynist films out there let's face it so why would is. I want to go and well, see this it's, it's, it's a difference it's turning it on its head uh, yeah. this is this is sort of the and in the um, it's it's kind of like, I guess, it's an examination of what a lot of American society does to women. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a misogynist out. film. It's a film about misogyny. Okay, so That's it's a self-reflexive Yeah, you know. exactly. It's okay. very aware um, of that. Yeah. I didn't expect it to be as funny as it is. Yeah. I think it's more a horror comedy in a lot of ways. I think there's... I mean, it's extremely dark comedy. Uh, it's extremely bloody comedy. But I think it is comedy. Um, and it's a pitch... Like... I think quite a dead-on satire of a lot of the American middle class that still kind of sees women as commodities mm. or 
uh, you know, secretaries and flight attendants they can sort of order around and mm. snap their fingers and do what they want with them. And I think Lucky McKee has always had very kind of empowered females in his films. And I think this, even though the, the woman of the title spends a lot of the film chained up, mm. like manages to still retain her power through yeah. that and and eventually boy does she get her revenge she always seems like she's in control <laughs> even when she's you know, yes yes yeah yeah um yeah I, I i was hugely entertained by this film i mean it, some of it is um some of the sound design in particular is great um mm. particularly the opening um yeah. is really kind of sets you on edge but but once it settles in it's kind of like oh okay this is the sort of we're, we're going for um over the top wild kind of satire here mm. but but yeah I, I i think it yeah i think it works a treat yeah agreed uh the film this month though that really really appealed to me, i love a good doco mm. and i love not just journalism but kind of the romanticizing of journalism and so page one you know, the doco about the new york times a year inside the new york times was just it was the subtitle could have been hey lee come see this because it was and it it yeah, it hit all the right notes for me. This is probably my favourite doco of the year so far. Uh, you talk it, about you? perfect timing. Mm. You know, truly, uh, here is a film that helps us, you know, make sense of not just the you know excesses of uh, the Murdoch, you know, empire and the yeah. the decline that we're just seeing uh, before us now, but um, but really goes back to looking at the the New York Times um, at a point of crisis. Um, and through the prism of the New York Times, looking at print publishing mm. at a time where it's really, um, you know, on the, the way out in a sense, in the, in the, just the economics don't support it. But the fundamental question is who is going to pay for the serious investigative journalism and serious newsmaking that is the staple of these print newspapers? We can't all just be aggregators. There's got to be a source there. Mm. There yeah. has to be a source. It's a fantastic film and there are some amazing characters in there. There's... Uh, there's one guy who I swear they've just got, got to make a film about it just so they can cast Saul Rubinick to play him. He's just <laughs> identical. But it's uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a who's this guy cracker. David Carr that used yeah. to be the crack addict and now he's this sort of kind of rock star of the paper and has this sort of croaky voice. Yeah, he's, he he's, seems like a treat. Yeah, he is. He's yeah. uh, he's he's the thing that really keeps you gripped. I think he's, mm. he's such an engaging character. It's definitely one for all the media junkies and, mm. uh, you know, it's sort of a, a, a year in the life of the New York Times. Uh, mm. The access is extraordinary. So, no, I loved it. It was yeah. fabulous. Uh, a film I'd really like to recommend um, is uh, Vim Vendors' Pina 3D, uh, which is... Now, I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not a dance guy. I never have been. You have the physique for it. You could be. I do. I don't have very leaf, uh, <laughs> but live. Uh, but <laughs> I don't um, but full disclosure I have a partner who trained in the same style as Pina did right. uh, as Pina pioneered um, and who worships her so I saw it with her but it's it's kind of the kind of thing it's like having someone like that has opened my eyes to the possibilities of this art form and I've got to say there's some. It, I think even people who aren't into contemporary dance as I'm not yeah. would still get something out of this. I, I think it's it's one of the most beautiful films of the year in terms of its of its look. Um the dance the, the dance routines are so primal and so but also kind of fitting into to the modern world and very kind of primal concepts of love and 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 loss and loneliness and 
what have you. Um, but it's also, um, I think, vendors show such a love towards the subject and her works that you just can't help but get sucked into it. And the use of 3D is amazing. It's one of the... I think I, it's the third film I've ever seen where I'm like, this deserves to be in 3D. I was going to say, I don't hear that from you very often. No, no, I'm a 3D hater. I'm, I'm, I'm out there about that. But I think... See, I, my thing on 3D is I think there are certain... As I said in the podcast mm. um, a few months ago, there are certain films that I think it can be utilised perfectly and, and, and help the project. It's not a catch-all. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not a one size fits all hat. Um, but yeah, something about the the, com- the vendors' composition and and the theatrical theatrical milieu just brings out the three D wonderfully. And um, yeah, and I, I just think if, if you just want to go in and just just surrender to the beauty of of this piece, go see Peanut Three D. So it sounds like you know the vendors are sort of really working with the aesthetic of 3D you know, and the possibilities of it as, a, as an art form as opposed to the novelty and the shock value of 3D. Yeah, I think he is. I think, he's just, I think it's, it just comes organically out of the material. I think he's just... Because most of the film is comprised of Pina's routines because there's not a, actually a great deal of surviving footage of Pina herself. Um, and there's a little bit of that in there and it's great to see and, and you kind of... As the film goes on, you kind of get a little bit of a lump in your throat. Um, but it's the it's the actual it's because it's a it's an art form dedicated to physicality into and into drawing the audience in. There's something about 3D that really just makes it that much more immersive. Yeah, I, I just think it's it's a beautiful work. And, and I've, I've heard similar raves from people who don't really like dance. Yeah, and they've just fallen head over heels for this film. So yeah, I do want to check it out. Highly recommended. So I saw Jane Eyre. Yeah. Now you guys probably wouldn't be in a hurry to line up and see Jane Eyre. And you know how many times oh. do you see Jane Eyre any time in your life? Or well, talk to any woman, you've probably seen at least four versions, I would say. Well, I have a crush on <laughs> Fassbender, so uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I could be saying it. No. Well, he's good, but um, how many versions have there been? Oh, I think, gosh, that you know, if you count in the TV versions and yeah. so on, mm. you know, there'd have to be over a dozen around the world. Orson yeah. Welles was Rochester yeah. at one point. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I, I, I've never recovered from when Elizabeth Taylor played Helen, the little friend. You know, sort of when she was probably ten years old. You know, wow. in the sort of forties version, and um, you know, the little friend who dies. You know, Jane's one friend in life, sort of thing. But anyway, having got over that, I did go along and see um, Jane Eyre, and um, Mia Wachowska is just extraordinary. Like mm. she, mm-hmm. she does give um, an interpretation and a depth to that role that is in many ways a much more complex one and um, than the normal sort of melodramatic I suppose uh, version that you will often see in the, in the Jane Eyre films mm. um, you know there's it's a very cool a very almost cold you know film seems something ghostly about it from the outside looking in yeah look probably, I wouldn't say um ghostly because it's it, it you know it's very much located in the sexual politics and the milieu of the time and you understand the um just what a um claustrophobic contained world what that was the world of, of this woman and then what rochester and uh, the you know her position in that household meant Mm. Um, for her and all the transgressions. It's really a film about transgression amongst anything else on every level. Yep. And it's just, it is very well done. It's mm. beautifully done. So you also saw The Beaver, the new Jodie Foster directed film? Yeah, I saw The Beaver in Cannes actually. Um, 
amongst all as the... As you do. As you do. <laughs> the, um, you know, in many ways, you know, the beaver, the resurrection of um, Mel, um, mm. you know, it's, yes, there are filmmakers that make vanity projects for themselves, but this is, you know, a vanity love project from Jodie Foster to Mel, really. Mm. But, um and Mel didn't say very much in Cannes. Um, he, in fact, didn't talk to the press at all. But uh, probably, probably a best. safe bet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a safe move. Um, but look, the and everyone took it out on Lars von Trier. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> they did. Paid up big time this yeah. year. Um, look, the, the Beaver, you know, was based on a pretty extraordinary script. Um, it was, you know, a big risk in the sense that a bit like um, Lars and the Real Girl, you're asking the audience to suspense, um, suspend their disbelief and to imagine that this guy is going to find his redemption in the relationship he has with a puppet, a hand puppet, which is the beaver. And this becomes his way of communicating to his kids, to his family, to his wife, to, you know, he, he's basically given up on everything. Because he's the CEO of a toy company, isn't he? That's right. That's what makes the beaver make sense. Yeah, that's right. Mm. And um, he's he's lost everything pretty much, his his marriage, his family, his self-esteem and so on, but the beaver becomes his way to regain Mm. all of that. So, you know, it does work on a bit of a metaphorical level with Mel, (laughs) let's face it. It's a pretty thin metaphor. (laughs) Who's lost, you know, a lot along the way. Mm. Uh, But at the end of the day, it just doesn't get its tone uh, it's set onto its tone. It's trying to do, you know, two things really. You know, the, there's the kind of melodrama of the family story, but then there's the sort of hyper, uh, you know, the slightly surreal aspect of the beaver puppet. Mm. Um, but unlike Lars and the Real Girl, you you kind of don't believe it. So you're sitting on the outside of it most of the time, thinking, "What is this guy doing? You know, mm. are they for real?" Oh, that's a shame. And and how's Mel? Because I've heard his performance in this is quite amazing. Well, that, that's the thing. Like, he, he does – it's a very committed performance. Like, he plays it absolutely straight. And, um, no, it's a good performance in that sense. It, it's, it's just more in I – I hate to say it because I'm a big, big fan of Jodie Foster. But it's, uh, it, I think it's in the direction and just not really um, properly uh, understanding the, uh, you know, the tone or the material that um, in, in a sufficient enough way to really sell the central conceit hmm. that you know she's asking the audience to buy which is to you know to really believe this guy and his relationship with this hand puppet which is a pretty high concept hmm. to make audiences buy isn't it <laughs> yeah. so yeah it's walking a tightrope oh, okay well speaking of the beaver and of Mel Gibson and his shall we say precarious journey over the last few years it brings to light a um, an issue that came up when uh, he was cast in a, uh, a stunt cameo for um, The Hangover 2, which was being made at the time, um, and apparently the cast vetoed that and said, no, we don't want to work with this guy because it was so soon after the, the incident with all the um, anti-Semitic epithets and whatnot. And it just sort of brought to light, because um, there have been a few examples of this over the years, um, in terms of how much does a person's personal indiscretions affect your attitude to their screen personas or their work, their art. Roman Polanski is another example of this. Woody Allen. Um, Eli Kazan. Eli Kazan, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, of course, there's your O.J. Simpson, like watching things that he was in retroactively, you know, mm. retrospectively and, and, and so forth. Do you guys, does it, does it play on your minds at all? i got to say I am impressed that uh, the cast of The Hangover chose to speak up 
when Mel Gibson was cast and not in the first film when convicted rapist Mike Tyson was cast. I thought yeah. that was an interesting line to draw there. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's Hollywood for you. Yeah, this is an issue I am always torn by because on one hand I think the art should absolutely speak for itself. Well, look, let's face it, there's, there's those that you know, commit the so-called um, indiscretions and... Then there are those who have those indiscretions reported in the public sphere very, mm. very widely, which of course is you know the stars and celebrities and so on. Because let's face it, if everybody who had said had made ill-advised comments oh. over the phone to exes was recorded <laughs> and <laughs> disseminated widely, then we'd all be up the creek, you know, with yeah. the, the proverbial mm. um, or made off-colour jokes or yeah. you know, yeah. like. Absolutely. But, you know, that said, there's an awful lot of shabby behaviour that, that goes on. And, you know, and to be honest, you know, men behaving badly, usually to women. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you look at a lot of those, whether it's the Roman Polanskis and O.J. Simpsons, whatever, um, that have not even been brought to account properly within the justice system for those indiscretions that somehow managed to evade... Mm. Uh, then yeah, there there are some r- very real questions. But at the same time, if do it does that stop us from going and seeing their movies, listening to their music, reading their books, and so on? The answer, by and large, is no. You know, mm. we at the end of the day, yeah, art and self-expression and so on is, is something that somehow it sits outside. I suppose you know if they've got the opportunity to continue to, to make work and it's great work, then we judge that for what it is and then we judge the person mm. for, for who they are. But the, the two, yeah, I would say by and large we don't mix up. I find that, I guess it would probably collide more if the art reflected the crimes or the attitude or the misdemeanours. Like if Roman Polanski came out and made horribly, you know, misogynist films about, you know, men sleeping with 13-year-olds or mm. whatever. Like, or well, that's Woody Allen. <laughs> 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 but well, um, yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, and that's interesting with Woody because you go back and watch, you know, you watch things like Manhattan in which his 42-year-old character is dating 17-year-old Mariel Hemingway, you know, and... Yeah. They're pretty creepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's treated as something quirky and... Mm. Yeah, is it because we don't take Woody quite seriously because, you know, he's not exactly, you know, the archetypal matinee idol? Mm. Yeah. Look, Woody's an interesting one because I, I often wonder, do I defend artists pe- the more I like their work, whereas what you know what he did wasn't isn't something that's particularly admirable. On the other hand, it's not really any of my business, and I still love his movies. Yeah, but but it's interesting you, you talk about the the art versus the the personal behaviour. I was far more disturbed by the anti-Semitism in Passion of the Christ than I was in Mel Gibson's leaked tapes because mm. I didn't care about that. But Passion of the Christ disturbed me. And I that's think that's an example of what I'm talking about. Mm. It's suddenly the art is colliding with the attitude. Mm. Yeah. And suddenly it's like, oh, well now, it's not a case of suddenly that, oh, he does this in his private life, then who cares? Mm. It's coming out. and It's it's like a politician reflecting their bad behaviour and their policies. Mm. You know, it's that sort of... Whereas normally it's like, well, if someone's a great politician and a great leader with great policies, and who cares who the hell they sleep with? Mm. I honestly don't. Well, then, you know, I mean, Hitler's responsible through Lenny Raffenstahl, Triumph of the Will, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, extraordinary art, but this is where the, yeah. the, 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 the person and the propaganda... 
and the attitude all you know come together and um, you know it's hard to be to morally defend mm. yeah. uh, a film like that even though it's could be arguably described as great art mm. on the other hand are these people role models like mm. and you know you see this with sports stars mm. when they behave poorly and you think I guess a lot of people don't really care whether the director behaves poorly because there aren't, aren't kids growing up wanting to be, you know, when they're at that impressionable age. But when it's a, a movie star, there is the question of that they are role models. They are sort of, they, they need to be on when they're off camera. Mm. But on the flip side of the camera, Sue, would you hire somebody with that sort of reputation, with a really bad reputation, who was absolutely perfect for your project, whether it be a director or a star? The perfect person, but... Well, let's face it, we're hiring actors and by and large, actors are not the perfect people <laughs> <laughs> on so any level. Uh, but everybody's got their baggage. Everybody's got their baggage. Yeah. But mm. I would, you know, obviously be thinking twice about hiring. Um, you know, I certainly wouldn't be hiring anybody that was currently um, subject to, you know, any kind of judicial or, um, mm. uh, you know, had anything sitting over there heads in terms of that I had you know I found that was morally reprehensible or you know if we're talking about the kind of Roman Polanski type mm. scenarios but that said um, you know in, in this business then uh, there there's a lot of bad behavior um, and there is a lot of tolerance and there needs to be a lot of um, forgiveness as well because mm. You know, particularly amongst actors, it, what we ask actors, actors to do in front of cameras, by and large, is the most um, you know terrifying, death-defying, um, uh, challenging experience uh, that plays on insecurities, and it's we're asking you know actors to kind of strip all and give over to the roles and the characters that we're putting before them, and then give that to the camera in a way that reaches us through this you know ex magic that we create when we make a film um there you know that that's a big ask and it's asking people to reveal themselves in the way that's completely counter to the way that we protect ourselves out in the world every single day yeah, yeah. they take risks and they they mm. do it on an emotional level they become very vulnerable and yes there's bad behavior at times and you have to live with that they have to live with it more, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting whose society chooses role models, isn't it? Because we've got actors who are, you know, by and large, quite, you know, emotionally up and down people. Then we've got sports stars who are usually young, immature, and way overpaid. Mm. <laughs> it's like we're not exactly we're setting ourselves right. up for a fall. We are, we are. <laughs> well, I just I do admire, you know, what what they do. I have an enormous amount of respect for for what they do, but I do know, you know, it, it can come with baggage, and mm. people have to they deal with that in all sorts of ways. And sometimes it might mean hitting the drink, or it can mean you know bad behaviour or whatever. Some actors are just you know so professional they've found a way to not have to go down those paths, and you you're constantly delighted, you know, when you around the likes of people like a Jeffrey Rush, for instance, mm. or, you know, there's, I mean, there's a lot of Australian actors that just don't have to go into that whole spiral in order mm. to do good work. They can just get out there and do very good work when the camera rolls. Lucky them. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Sue, whom have you picked for your Take It Fall? Hellas for Hyphenates, filmmaker of the month. <laughs> 
Well, I have to um, pick Francis Weber, um, the wonderful, wonderful French uh, writer-director who, because he was out here in Melbourne just recently and we had the most gorgeous week with him as he was talking about um, his extensive um, filmography uh, and sharing, I suppose, um, as indeed somebody who has, you know, is at the top of his game, has got nothing left to prove to anybody and is open to actually talking to you know fellow film lovers writers directors and so on and sharing that incredible experience and knowledge and he was an absolute delight charming i'm completely won over <laughs> wow now have you always been a fan like you've been a long time fan of his or no you, no. Only, recently you only recently caught uh weber fever <laughs> oh man oh, oh, draw the bow Sorry. way back for that one it's <laughs> sitting on that for way too long <laughs> You, you were so hoping it was pronounced Viva. I really was. I really was. <laughs> Funnily enough, I had seen his, his films over the years, but I hadn't actually made the connection mm. that they were all made by this um, same filmmaker mm. um, until this opportunity came to meet him when I was in France uh, in, uh, during the Cannes Film Festival. And um, I had, you know, looked at the the work, and most people would probably be more familiar with recent films like um, The Dinner Game and The Valet, um, and films. He he was a um, going right back to the late seventies when he had writing credits. His first big writing credit he actually got an Oscar nomination for, and that was with La Cage aux Folles, mm. which many people that that was the first film I saw, and that was years ago. I don't think I've known a filmmaker to be remade so much. Oh, uh, yeah, mm. th- it's true, and they're all pretty abysmal. <laughs> yeah. His, um, with, with the exception of um, The Birdcage, which, of course, was yeah. the Robin mm. Williams, Nathan Lane. Mike Nichols. Um, mm. re- in the hands of the wonderful Mike Nichols, mm. the remake that of really La Cage aux Folles. And didn't yeah. Elaine May write the screenplay as well? Yes, she did. Yeah, yeah. so it was the Nichols and May. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, by and large, I mean, Francis will be the first person to, to just roll his eyeballs. And, um, and part of it, uh, you know, is that, the films that he and he he has always sort of focused on comedies with a particular interest in the odd couple style. He he describes mm. it as putting you know, a cat and a dog in the same bag and um, yeah. watching them go for it and seeing what happens. He's he's done this kind of buddy film, this odd co- odd couple film, um, time and time again, but you know with really interesting variations. But what um, makes them work uh, in his home territory and in France and why his original versions travel so well um, internationally is that sitting underneath the, you know, the humour and the comedy of these uh, odd pairings and so on, there's uh, a lot of humanity and a lot mm. of subtlety um, and this is something that evades the Americans. They just look at the concept because he always works in high concept films. Yeah. And they think, oh, we can, you know, we just work with the concept and the plot. And they... And overblown gags as well. Totally overblow it. Yeah. And the whole point of all of his films, and I think, you know, a number of your listeners might have seen more recent work like The Dinner Game, the whole idea is to make them claustrophobic, to... to he describes it like a web. You've got the spider and the fly mm. in the web. And what you're fascinated is that neither of them can get out of that web. So you want to watch the inevitable, but it's the, you know, it's the... The humour and the, the um, tragedy all tied in together um, in, in this 
one environment of this single web. The mm. Americans can't bear that. They, mm. you know, they just overblow it and create more and more escalated scenarios and more plot contrivances and more locations yeah. in order to sell the same concept. Yeah, I heard someone say during the week, I don't know, but the spectacle is the enemy of funny. And it, I think it's really apt. Well, there's three words, in. really. Dinner for schmucks. That yeah. sums it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. You have to see Dinner for Schmucks. <laughs> I, I, want, I want to out of interest, having, you know, having seen uh, The Dinner Game now. Oh, you have to. Um, yeah. It's overblown in every way. Like, it's 50 minutes longer than really? The Dinner Game. Yeah. It's like a, the biggest wannabe Blake Edwards film, you know. It's just Blake Edwards is someone who came to mind in terms of uh, his inspiration. I'm just guessing it is inspiration, but particularly with The Toy, his first directorial film in 76, I really saw a lot of Jerry Lewis and Norman Wisdom in there. Uh, I don't know if... Definitely you... Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah Jerry there's... Lewis vibe from that. Yeah, I don't know if he, if he mentioned in any of that when you talked to him about his, his inspirations, but I think he certainly took yeah, a lot from no, those he, classic he, comedies. He was a big fan, big fan yeah. of Jerry Lewis. And, uh, yeah. It's always interesting. I, I, there's times when it gets really uncomfortable, uh, <laughs> you know, asking a man and a boy to have a bath together. and <laughs> It's just really... And the end, like particularly the last five minutes, the dialogue's like something out of a romantic comedy. Like, mm. oh, you realise there's nothing for you if you go with him and... But if you stay with me, I'll give you everything you want. And it's like I don't know if he meant it to be quite this creepy, but it's but it's creepy. Um, he, he does he does structure his films like romances. Mm. It's just very rarely between a man and a woman. The traditional, yeah. yeah. But this one just happens to be between a small boy and a grown man. Mm. Um, it's yeah, yeah but I, it's a small boy who. Um, is being indulged in the sense that this little kid sees the man in the shop window and that's the toy he wants mm. and wants to take home and everybody sort of indulges that fantasy. It, it, in some ways, it's kind of a little bit like the beaver. <laughs> Dare I go back to the beaver? Yeah, yeah. In the sense that you're asking you know, the audience to believe this. To believe this. Um, yeah, it's probably not his most um, you know, successful one. Well, but, he's still um, finding his feet, I He think. was finding yeah. his feet, and, and really that the his big success, which led to the, the first three really important buddy films, mm. was La Chevre, or The Goat. Mm, yeah. I just, just one last word on the toy. I think it gets better as it starts getting more political. I think once it starts mm. focusing on the boy waking up to what his father does for a living, and then they start publishing the paper, and... I think mm. that starts getting better, and and I but I was sort of won over by it in the second half. But yeah, it's really kind of and and some as you say, being his first film, he's still working out his style. Some of the filmmaking is a bit clunky as well, but but it's a hell of yeah. a lot better than the Richard Donner Richard Pryor remake, <laughs> um, which is a kind of a theme we'll go through because his first four films were all remade. All of them, all of them, the all twelve was. have been remade. Is that right? Absolutely. In fact, one of them you might not know was made by an, remade by an Australian director, Nadia Tass. Yes, yeah, Pure I luck. saw that. Well, yeah. that film, the original, is the next one, uh, Le Chev, which Chev. means the goat. Yeah, the uh, and it's funny you talking about Hollywood before because watching it, it it really felt like this. It was the sort of absurdity that Hollywood always tries to ape and just misses. Uh, it, it it feels like one of the important precursors to the buddy comedy, mm. uh, the, the the two mismatched guys. In know. this instance, um, Gerard Depardieu, mm. uh, in his first comic role, actually. Really? Yeah, it was. It was not long after he had done Serrano. Yep. And um, Depardieu himself said to Weber, you, you, know, you must be kidding, I'm not a comic actor. And... Um, Verbeer convinced him to actually play straight. He didn't want the gags. He didn't want him to play comic. He just had to play straight against um, Pierre Richard 
um, who uh, it was a very famous mm. um, comedian, uh, French comedian. And, and was the lead in the toy. That's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. So um, it, it's actually that combination of, um, you know, Depardieu, which he does actually in, you know, the, the, the next few films in, the, in that incredibly successful teaming. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that makes it so bloody funny. I love this film. This was the one of the film of, of the, the VBF films I got to see for this uh, podcast. This was the one that blew me away. Mm. That was yeah. fantastic. I love the way Jeffrey just underplayed everything. Yeah. Um, the way he completely resigned himself to situations. Like when Pierre Richard's sinking into the quicksand. Yeah. And he's just talking... And Jeffrey's just sort of talking to him. Like, Why are you sinking? Why are you doing that? Stop doing that. He's <laughs> <laughs> so, so fed up. And so uh, fed up with this guy's calamity. That by the end, he's just completely resigned to it. It's just... Why you stop doing this? Like as if it's something he can control. Yeah, um, it's a really great relationship, and it's it's one when they made uh, uh, Le Compère. Is that my pronouncing that correctly? Yep. I'm very yep. bad with my French. Uh, in '83, you could really see his love of the elaborate setup, which will become a big theme later on. It's sort of his films are getting more and more elaborate with the uh, the con- the contrivance of the setup. Yeah. Again, you know, another high concept film. So in this instance, you've got. Um, the runaway teenage boy, his mum, you know, desperate to find him, get him back because he's run off with the girlfriend and, you know, her current um, partner, the, the kid's stepfather, is pretty useless. So she goes to two ex-lovers. Um, they've got absolutely no idea that, but implies that, that either one of them could be the father mm. of this kid and tells them both, in fact, that they are the father so that they both go on the road to try and bring this kid back home. So again, this sort of teaming up of this, you know, these, this buddy between these two unlikely dads. Mm. Who are again Depardieu and Richard. That's mm. right. And it just gets more and more wacky and complex but the economy of the comedy is extraordinary each all of those films are less than 90 minutes long this is one of the things i loved about it because i often as lee well knows go on rants about how most films are too damn long these days and the thing one of the things i really got i got onto with Weber is his economy like mm. he's never made a film longer than 100 minutes long all of his films are between 80 and 90 uh, 80 and 100 minutes and yeah it's not a scene is wasted and they just mm. keep moving and there's this great momentum I thought this one was hilarious too, the compare. Um, uh, another great um, uh, teaming of these guys. Again, it's it's a great thing I, I often want Hollywood to do more in the way it's like, don't make a sequel, make a new film that trades on the same dynamics. Mm. Mm. You know, it's like they didn't go out and make, after The Chef was obviously a big hit, they didn't make Le Chef 2. Yeah. You know, no, they made The Fugitives. So, yeah, you yeah. know, again, Pierre, well, you know, Richard and Gerard Depardieu team yeah. up. Three films in a row, completely different setups, but the same... Same, same dynamic, same lead, same yeah. director. And it's like, yeah, Le Fugitives is pretty much Le Chef 3, but they're yeah. all completely different. Mm. And the relationships are subtly different. Mm. Like in, in Le Fugitives, um, uh, Pierre Richard's character is a little more hard-edged. Yeah. He's more, he fights back this time, and, uh, you know, and there's... Whereas in Le Chef, he just tells people that they're, <laughs> that they're lucky he doesn't fire up. <laughs> and it's great. Le, Fugitive is really about what makes a family. I mean, it's so rare that you see such a silly comedy be about something, but it really is, you know, people come from these bizarre backgrounds mm-hmm. and usually collide in very unexpected ways and generally will end up making a family. And it's really, again, it's this sweetness that avoids the saccharine. 
Mm. I mm, there are a couple of times I thought it got a little sentimental. Yeah, that dreadful shots music, of the little girl, and yeah. the music too. We, yeah, yeah. L- I just little felt girl I like, I theme. Like the <laughs> yeah, the music so cute though. She's adorable, <laughs> but it's like there's long shots. It's like look, she's really adorable. It's like yeah, we know. One quicker <laughs> shot would have done that. But yeah, I I thought it's still the fugitives are still a lot of fun. But I felt and and plus it's a film I think it doesn't juggle tone as well as the other two, the previous two. It's sort of like, it's sort of this part action, part comedy, part crime movie. That's not, that's quite funny, but not quite hilarious. It's quite exciting, but not quite gripping. Yeah, it's sort of, but it's still entertaining. You think it's trying to be too many things at once? I think it is, yeah. Um, Which is, but then is certainly um, symptomatic of his next film, which was the remake of his own film, yeah, which was three well, directors who's remade their own film. Yeah, see, th- this was kind of, you know, the at the point at which, um, you know, Hollywood started taking notice that this guy was making a bit of money in his home territory. So what do mm. they do? They go and pluck him out of his home territory, set him up with an office in Hollywood and said, okay, do your magic here. And he did a lot of work on other people's scripts. He was writing for others as well, but in... in um, he he was also um, given the opportunity to do these kind of remakes, but of course, the the um, it was never as successful as the films that were were made in his mm. his own culture and his own voice and so on. Mm. And he had a lot of control over mm. Three Fugitives, which mm. was his next film, which was a direct remake of Left Fugitives, a shot for shot. It's remake. Yeah, it's it's pretty much shot for shot yeah. to the extent that he must have gone to so much effort to get locations that look the same yes. way, the doors in the same place, the furniture's in the same place. Mm. He drives the car off the road down an embankment that's in the it's same. Identical. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. I think Three Fugitives suffers mainly from, I think, while Nick Nolte is an excellent physical double. For mm. Gerard Depardieu, I don't think he has Depardieu's warmth mm. or comic ability, and yeah. I think that's where it begins yeah. to suffer. Because I think Depard, I think a lot of Three Fugitives gets by due to Depardieu. He has this natural warmth about him that mm. even when he's playing a prick, yeah. you still kind of like him. You still know that somewhere in there, his heart's in the right place. Mm. Um, and yeah, and I think I think Short's probably a little too frenetic, and yeah, mm. just. It's and the yeah. music score is one of the worst I've heard. If we thought the Left Fugitive <laughs> score was bad, this one Three Fugitives does stand out. Yeah, that's. Uh... You know, it just occurred to me because I hadn't realised until you know I didn't watch all of these films in in this particular order. So now, just think talking about it, I realised that those first three films, um, you know, the Buddy films, were actually all about you know fathers and their children and being a good yeah. father. Mm. So sitting underneath all of that, there's actually. A, a desire to be a good father. Well, right. even Le Chev too. Like it's well, a father I mean. who sends the, the, them out. Yeah, to the Chevre, the Comdads, or Compare, and the Fugitives. Mm. All mm. of them. Yeah, from there, we go to his uh, second attempt at Hollywood. His second attempt at Hollywood. Now, this is the only one of his films he didn't write, and it's the only one that I, I feel doesn't quite work. Mm, no, uh, it doesn't. It's very uneven. He sets uh, Matthew Broderick plays this guy, and they set up this amazing ability that he has to predict what everyone will do before they do it. Mm. And they really play it up in the beginning, and then do nothing with it. It's, mm. He doesn't do. He doesn't use that ability later on in the film. Yeah, there's one point where he begins to, where he's sussing out what the gyms are doing, and then she's mm. better at it than he is, and then they just sort yeah, of drop yeah. it for the rest of the film. You it's know, it's a recurring thing that Francis often talks about is that it's very easy to set up a first act. You know, and around the concept, mm. you know, set up a first act, but and you know, for, for Francis, he's done that many, many times. But it's that does not necessarily lead to a, a good 
film mm. you know and certainly you know you get into all sorts of strife as you try and develop that into a second and a third act you know that but um that that can be the um, achilles heel of a concept film yeah as is uh casting two children as siskel and ebert parodies yeah where That's, does that come from that I, was an interesting choice i felt like maybe they'd given three fugitives a bad review or something and yeah. this was his revenge. I don't know where that came it's from. It's just the film keeps coming to these grinding halts <laughs> so these two precocious kids can review what's happening so yeah. far. Like, it's, it's a strange And it choice. just seems really laboured too. And it just seems like a lot of wacky events bolted together. It feels very holy. It, it actually feels like one of the remakes. Mm. It feels like it's just everything's kind of blown out of proportion. Oh, like, like there's a point where Broderick and um, the lead actress, um, Heidi Kling, who's, I don't think, ever done anything again, mm. um, they share a kiss at one point for no reason it's like it's just time it's just yeah it's yeah. like oh time for them to start falling in love now I guess and it's like no chemistry mm. no thing it's like she's just looked at him a few times and spent the whole you know last 20 minutes trying to punch crap out of him it's like oh now they kiss and it's like it just feels really awkward mm. and really mechanical yeah it's interesting that uh, after that film he doesn't just leave Hollywood he leaves comedy because in 96 uh, the Jaguar, or the Jaguar, uh, is this really, really strange film. It's kind of, it's kind of structured like a comedy, but it's very, very serious, and it's about mysticism. And uh, I don't know if it's kind of fish out of water, but it doesn't really play with those tropes very I much. I think they got lost in Mexican jungle <laughs> or something. <laughs> it, they went on a pretty strange trip with that film, I gather. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's it's unlike anything else in his filmography. It's it's a very odd one. Um, and it's his first pairing with uh, Jean Renault. Yeah, the wonderful Jean Renault. Before I didn't realize it was comedy. I was watching Renault going, oh, "What's he going to do? Is he going to be funny? What's he? You know? <laughs> wow, no, this is a serious Are you film. Shoot okay. something? Are you going to shoot something now? <laughs> it's not a bad film per se, but it's uh, it doesn't quite come together. Mm. Um, Whereas two years later... Yeah, he went back home, I think. and yeah. uh, Well, in fact, he was probably writing the play around that time, mm. um, the, dinner the Dinner Game, because it was a very successful stage play first. Funny you say that, because I was watching the film and thinking, this feels like a play. Mm. Yeah. No, it so, was. Yeah. Mm. Um, interesting. I, I kind of have this theory. I feel like there are two Francis, v Francis Viber careers. I feel like there's... He set it up with his first film, The Toy, which is these kind of social comedies of circumstance and of, you know, people subverting themselves in order to gain some measure of what society deems as success. It's subverting the self to be success to, successful to others before mm. you finally realise, you know what, I'm, I just want to be me. To thine own self be true. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, but then from Le Chev to Out on a Limb, it's the buddy comedies. And it's the, you know, it's, and, and they're very, as you say, so, so focused around family. And makeshift families and and what have you and um, and I feel like those those are two very distinct careers. The Jaguar doesn't seem to fit into either of them. No, um, seems to be the odd man out. Yeah, but, but yeah, but I feel like the dinner game is a return, um, being the second one after the toy to the start to the social, uh, the comedy of um, this social social circumstance comedy, um, and then he follows this thread for the rest of his career today. It certainly yeah, it certainly feels like he hit a groove and. Yeah, he's still in that, and not in a bad way. I think it's it's a no. great groove to be in. The Dinner Game is, I think, it's his best film. It's uh, the characterization is brilliant. The 
ability to sell you on this unlikely setup of why would these two people be in the same room and why won't one of them leave <laughs> and that he sells you on that for like over an hour straight and you never once you know think oh wow now it's getting unbelievable it's just it's superb and and what's so um subversive about it i suppose is that you buy into the idea that daniel a toy a toy character who seems to be in control um from the outset and he's going to invite the fool you know over to his place before they go to the dinner and of course everything goes horribly wrong and it turns out that you know who the real fool in the room is mm. is in fact him um but again both characters absolutely play it straight in the sense that th- th- it's very situational there's a lot of um you know com- physical comedy and so on that's just around situation character and situation and it's hysterically funny mm. watching this um you know the, the gradual i suppose reverse of fortune yeah that and the comeuppance when the so-called um, fool ends up really, you know, being the guy who has most heart, most compassion, and of course ends up winning, um, you know, by the end of the film, in, in this sort of, you know, game, this cat and mouse game. Mm. And he certainly likes the fool, the or the hapless idiot, and they're idiots to different degrees, but they're in pretty much every single one of his films. Mm. And they're all got the same name for the most part. This is something we haven't brought up. There, they're there all are, Francois Pignon there or Francois six, Perrin. Yeah, I counted. Mm. There are six uh, Pignons and three Perrins. Yes. And they're all Francois. That's right. And I started to think maybe it was like his version of, um, you know, Woody Allen's Avatar or, or Chaplin's Tramp. You know, mm. this is his character and he just applies different actors yeah. to it. Each time, it's he, it, he will actually say that you know it's a part, a very big part of Francis that yeah. that is you know Francois Francois Pignon. I, I always <laughs> felt like he knew a kid in school named Francois Pignon who like was a bit of an idiot. No, he, did, he got a really nice kid. I think he just got the name actually um, out of the phone book or you know, oh, just, really? yeah randomly. And anyway, because the the name kept reappearing in all of his films and so on, there's hmm. actually a Francois. Um, Pignon Society. <laughs> I heard now. that. Yes, and they got in touch with him. You know, and uh, every now and then, you know, he gets these letters or these phone calls from uh, Pignons. He's the patron saint of Pignons now. <laughs> <laughs> the um, thing I found chilling about the dinner game, though, is mm. unlike Dinner for Schmucks, the ill-fated American remake, where everybody is so ridiculously off the wall. These people were just the so-called fools were just hobbyists. Yeah. It's just some dude that was really into boomerangs and another guy that's just really into making things out of matchsticks. And it's like, I could, I'm could i a film buff. I take film really seriously. I could be at one of these parties. Well, you could. They could invite <laughs> me because I talk too much about film directors. <laughs> and I found that frightening. <laughs> it's just something. There's actually like a they're really just buffs. There's they're actually a really nice note in uh, in The Valet. Uh, which a couple of films later, where the main character, uh, who was again Francois Pignon, is visiting his father, who has a collection of things, and he says he just makes an offhand comment about, "Oh, I've been invited to dinner to talk about it." <laughs> <laughs> and you, and you think you, you realize the dinner games are still going on in this universe that he's created? <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, I didn't pick that. Kate pointed out to me, so full credit to her. But um, after the dinner game, you know, the closet in two thousand and one, which is, it's pretty full on for for such a light-hearted comedy it deals with you know gay bashing and sexual harassment and oh. suicide and suicide's a theme in a lot of its films the yeah. amount of films that start with somebody about to commit suicide mm. uh for a guy makes comedies that's mm. 
an odd odd uh, vein. Well, I think it gets you to vulnerability really, really quickly. And at the heart of really great, great comedy, you know, you have to see vulnerability as well. Yeah. There's a fearlessness to it, though, that you just don't see. Mm -hmm. That sort of people putting suicides into comedies unless they label black comedies Mm -hmm. up front. And I guess this is, you know, certainly with American comedies, they're afraid to go into really dark places like that. So to see him go there so often... Mm. Is, is what's remarkable. But, um, but it's a fabulous conceit in this instance, you know, a guy who is, you know, wants to commit suicide because he's lost his, you know, his wife, he's lost his job, mm. you know, everything looks like it's falling apart, but his next door neighbour who manages to stop him, you know, mm. committing suicide comes up with a scheme and that is how he can save his job, mm. which happens to be in a condom factory, <laughs> by declaring he's gay mm. because of course they couldn't possibly sack a gay guy yeah. from a condom fac- factory <laughs> it would be such bad press and it's uh, it, again another really situation you know great situation and uh, he he just escalates it escalates mm. it you know? and so again it's somebody pretending there's somebody else in order mm. to succeed and oh the yeah. guy's completely straight but he, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. got to <laughs> pretend he's gay to yeah. save his job and it's so uplifting and i think one of the reasons that he drags his characters mm. down so far is that so when you have that uplifting ending, you really feel you've earned it and you mm. feel really great about it. Mm. Um, He's pretty big on cross-dressing too. You know, a lot of his films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Three <laughs> Fugitives is, and yeah. the Left Fugitives both have that. Absolutely. Uh, he likes putting his characters through the ringer too. He does, yeah. Like, like he really fun. puts them through some... Mm. Full-on physical comedy, mm. you mean? Mm. Oh, both physical yeah. and emotional yeah, as well. Emotional, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think he's... Uh, for me, Tatois in 2003... Was, is probably his funniest film. Oh, wow. I laughed harder at this than any of the others. Now, that's a return to the buddy comedy, isn't it? That's it's a return it's to style number Gerard two. Gerard Depardieu and Jean Reno, and this is like it's like the heat of yeah. French comedies. You know, <laughs> you want to see these guys in a film together, and uh, it, it absolutely pays off. They're just... I, I'm surprised at Quentin, because he's such... Uh, that Depardieu plays. He's such an idiot, and it's so far removed from the characters he played early on. I'm surprised he wasn't a pignon. It seems yeah. so... Yeah. Or a Francois. <laughs> yeah. He really loves the idiots who mean well. Like, they're his favourite... Mm. I think there's one point at which Renault's character says to him, you're going to get into heaven before everyone else. And this guy's a criminal. He's a convicted <laughs> criminal. But he's just so sweet. Um, yeah, it's, it's... Yeah, I think it's his funniest film. And it's great seeing um, Depardieu, you know, uh, play the sort of the comic, uh, you know, the full or style yeah, yeah, character. Yeah, rather, you know, rather than the straight guy. Um 2006's The Valet is, uh, this is where he really, really starts getting complex with his plots. Like, it's such an absurd fantasy, but it's, it's, it's really great. I love great. this film. Yeah, it's fantastic. I actually saw it, um, again, I didn't realise it was, uh, you know, a Verbeer film. Um, I saw it at the movie convention with all the mums and dads exhibitors sitting in, you know, the audience. Mm. Uh, I think um, Natalie Miller, Charmel Films, has uh, been a big champion of um, Verbeer's films over the years and has always um, brought them out here, uh, subtitled in French. Uh, the, sorry, the French version subtitled in English. And uh, it was just, it was one of those things sitting amongst a, an audience full of hardened exhibitors mm. who were just in hysterics, fits of <laughs> wow. laughter at this yeah. film. But, um, it's you know, weird the way that the, the love interest is actually quite underdeveloped, yet the supermodel MacGuffin, who could just be this body, you know, there to tempt him and play, she's a really complex character. Mm. She's really well developed. 
so to speak. And then his, his most recent film is 2008's A Pain in the Ass, which again, it's hitmen, it's suicide, it's really dark stuff, and it's pretty much set in one location. Like, you know, aside from a few quite elaborate bits, I could see this being a play. This, this uh, ended up being adapted by um, Billy Wilder. It became his final film. Oh, and this is Buddy Buddy. Buddy Buddy, which of course was a terrible disaster. Because Buddy Buddy is a Verbeer play that he adapted for the Billy Wilder film in '81. Wilder, um, you know, saw he saw Buddy Buddy and wanted to do it, but he um, saw it as a vehicle, you know, as a Buddy film, you know, for Mattel and um, Jack Lemmon. Mm. But of course, Mattel, who's meant to be playing the killer, you know, character. In anybody's book, is, you no know, one's going to believe Walter Mattel is you know, a serious killer. I mean, mm, yeah, you know, yeah. the, you know the Hollywoodization, I suppose, um, you know, undermined the, the concept from the outset. So it, it failed. It just didn't work. So the remake was made twenty years before the original. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a bit mind twisty. Um, I'm not entirely sure who, who you're meant to be rooting for. I'm not sure who the the audience is really meant to identify with because the pinion character in this is really annoying and really <laughs> unaware of his story. I guess it's a bit like dinner game in that sense because you know I, I guess you don't really relate to any specific character but you relate to everyone in a sense this along with Tetua is his most inspired ending I think in the the point at which he leaves it is both happy and sad and unexpected and he's really a master of not just sort of winding things down, but escalating them to a climax that kind of resolves what's come beforehand, but leaves so many questions. It's uh, he really ends films well. Mm. Usually at eighty-five minutes, yes, <laughs> which is brilliant. <laughs> Hollywood, take note. <laughs> Jesus, comedies do not need to be one hundred and thirty minutes long. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> I um, recently rant. sent him uh, a script. You know. Um, and, you know, it was a script that was running, you know, over 100 minutes and so on, a, a, a comedy that um, that I'm working on at the moment. And um, he, he came back and he, he was fabulous, but he said, Sue, this, this film needs to go on a diet. <laughs> 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 it is very good, but it is too much. It needs to go on a diet, this script. <laughs> Love it. That's, that's amazing. He's at that stage in his career where you kind of expect him to start losing what made him great but he seems to be honing his skills and i think he's better than ever now i think his his best stuff has been the last few years well it's interesting you bring up an australian connection too because he wrote an australian film or co-wrote an australian film with deb cox and yeah dead Dead letter office yeah Mm. really with miranda Mm. otto yes Mm. you know he's still writing absolutely he's just written a play that will be opening in um, paris in their major theater um, next year, and he has, you know, at this at this point in his career, he still has that anxiety about was the last film the last? Mm. You know, will he be able to do it again? Um, it's it's something you know, even somebody that has been doing it for as long as he has, with all the commercial success he's had, it it never leaves you. You know, it's uh, it's it's sobering, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> he was asked his you know top three tips, and the top tip he had for directors was make your actors run (laughs) that is you know don't have them walk across a room takes too much screen time (laughs) keep everything moving fast fast whatever you think you know in what you're watching real life just speed it up because on film everything slows down Mm -hmm. and don't think you can get pace in the editing room it has to be in front of the camera well, anyway, he was a very charming French man, apart from that. And as you can see, I was very won over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
I'm sorry I didn't get to meet him. But yeah, it's been a, it's a fantastic career, and uh, and thank you for coming on and enlightening us. It's been fun it. looking back. Thanks yeah. for uh, thanks for agreeing to do this and enjoying. No, it's been fun. So thank you for inviting me. Pleasure, pleasure, and we'll see the rest of you next month. Keep watching stuff. Yeah.